You guys doing well? Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 145. 145. You guys enjoying this rain? Good stuff, huh? My uh, cousin Jim pastors a church in Flag. They had to cancel church this morning because they had a foot of snow on the ground. And uh, so we almost canceled church today because we had an inch of water on the ground. No, we didn't. We wouldn't do that. I guess that's the first time they've ever done that. So pretty, pretty crazy. Good to have you with us this morning. The God You Long For is our current teaching series. The God You Long For is love. We're doing theology. Theology is the study of God. And why do we need to study about God? Because uh, it's at the root of our issues, our problems. All of our problems are rooted in our either that we don't know God or at the moment we are forgetting who God is. And so we've been exploring the attributes of God, the character of God, who God is. And um, we're going to wrap up this teaching series in, uh, in two weeks, three weeks, counting today. And we're going to end the, the teaching by looking at three characteristics of God that I think that uh, are critical to your ability to trust God. In fact, you've often heard me say this before, uh, to you can trust his loving, wise control. How many have ever heard me say that? You can trust his loving, wise control? Okay, there's a few of you who have heard me say that. That your trust increases in direct proportion to your understanding that God is perfect in love infinite in wisdom in regards to what he's doing in your life, and he's unlimited in his power. This is how it works really in our lives, is that um, in his perfect love, he wants the very best for you. We're going to look at that this morning, and uh, as you get to know that, I mean, you're overwhelmed by that, but he wants the very best for you. In his infinite wisdom, he knows what is best for you. And even better than you know for yourself, we're going to talk about that next week. And then in his unlimited power, he can do what is best for you. He will do it. He will fulfill it. And so the more you get to know those characteristics of God, the more you're going to be able to trust God. Our trust oftentimes is because we really don't know the object of our trust. And so the more you get to know God, the more you trust him. And so this morning we're looking at God's love. And so let me begin by asking you a question to think about God's love. Can, can or could an observer learn from the way you respond to the events of life and love others? Could an observer learn anything at all about the sacrificial love of God in your life, in the way that you respond to life, in the way that you love others? Would they be able to see that put on display in your life? Because it's, it's true, he loves you. He loves you, he loves you, his love is sacrificial. And to the degree that that goes down deep into your heart is to the degree then you begin to respond to life quite differently. And not only that, you begin to respond to the people in your life quite differently. So could people looking at your life see, see that God really does love you with a sacrificial love? That, that's our hope, is that that love would go from our head to our to our heart, it would go deep into our heart. Many talk about the love of God, few know the God of love. Most have a very simple and shallow view of God's love, which is evident by their lack of deep and durable passion for God and compassion for people. Now, the last few weeks, we've looked at the holiness of God, the glory of God, the beauty of God, very complex topics, and it was my job to try to make those very complex topics uh, somewhat more simpler, you know, to simplify those. But on this topic, we tend to have too simple and shallow of a view of God's love. And so we're going to look at it, and it's going to become more complex, actually. God's love is complex, and it's complete. Those are the two things we're going to be looking at, the, com- the complexities of God's love and the completeness of God's love. And, and here's what, what I hope happens this morning in our lives and in fact, this is what happens when God's love goes from, from concept to reality. What happens when God's love goes from concept to reality within your life? When it goes from head to heart, it is indeed a heaven on, a heaven on earth. No doubt about it. That the spiritually underfed are foreign to. And so I'm going to pray a prayer. It's found in Ephesians three fourteen through 21, the verses we looked at while we were 
doing our time of worship through song. I'm going to pray that. That's my prayer for you and for us this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment, and then we're going to dive into this text. It's a great text. We're going to read the whole chapter, Psalm 145, and then we're going to unpack it, kind of work through it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are here to meet with us today. We pray that out of your glorious riches that you would strengthen us with power through your Holy Spirit in our inner beings. I want to take a moment here. How many here this morning by show of hands would say, I could use more of God's power in my life. I'm facing some things in my life right now. I could use more of God's power. Show of hands. Show of hands. Yep. Okay. God sees your hands. So God, that's our prayer. You saw the people that raised their hands this morning. So we pray that out of your glorious riches that you would strengthen us with power through your Holy Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that we would be rooted and established in love, that we would have power together with all of the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Let's take a look at Psalm 145. So we're looking at two things here, the complexities of God's love and the completeness of God's love or the comprehensiveness of God's love. Psalm 145, verse 1. I will extol, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. I mean, this guy is excited as he's writing this. Just exuberant over the goodness of God. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to, what's that word there? All. The Lord is good to all. And I want you to take note of that. He's going to say that a number of times here. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall Speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds, what's that word there? The Lord upholds all who are falling... Take note of that. That's really interesting. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all who look to you, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The NIV 1984 NIV puts this phrase like this, loving, he is loving to all he has made. And then it kind of shifts, shifts gears, and then he says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them, the Lord preserves all who love him, another shift, but all the wicked he will destroy. And then he concludes the psalm here, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. So the complexities of God's love, first of all, on your notes, first fill in the blank, God loves everybody. God loves everybody. This is called, theologians call this God's common grace. 
Now take a look at verse 9, if you have your Bible still open there. Verse 9, he says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Then verses 14 through 17, you saw that. The Lord upholds all who are falling. When we go through tragedy, Christian and non-Christian alike, God is there to help. That's what it's saying. It's talking about God's common grace. When people go through, they experience tornadoes or hurricanes or problems or whatever they're going through, and people kind of rally around them and we supply things for them, that's an expression of God's common grace. God is working through those people's lives and in their lives. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. It continues on. So that's God's Common grace. God loves everybody. Matthew 5.45. Let me read that verse. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount teaching his disciples. And this is what he says. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How many would say that that's really hard to do? To love your enemies and to pray for those that persecute you. And why would he say that? Because it's extremely hard. In fact, there's probably no way that you could ever muster up the ability to do that in your own strength. Because it's supernatural. Because he says, the reason why he says this is so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, you're just like God. When you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, all you're doing is doing what God has always done. You're emulating God. You're becoming more like your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. There's a book here that I've got. It's uh, by Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashers. It's called Doctrine. It's a really a good book, What Christians Should Believe. In this book, he talks about God's common grace. I wanted to read a little excerpt to you just so that you understood a little bit more what common grace is, this fact that God loves everybody. God's common grace includes the water we drink, food we eat, sun we enjoy, and rain we need as God is good to the sinner and saint alike. The effects of God's common grace are innumerable. There we go. Little little air circulating. Okay, let me get back to it. So the effects of God's common grace are innumerable. God's common grace allows even those who despise him to learn and make gains in areas such as science, philosophy, technology, education, and medicine. God's common grace allows societies to flourish, families to exist, cities to rise up, and nations to prosper. Common grace also allows people who are not connected to God through Jesus Christ to live seemingly decent moral lives of compassion and service, though their deeds are not in any way done to God's glory as acts of worship. The result of God's common grace is that life as we experience it is far better than would otherwise be possible if sinners were simply left to themselves. So that's God's common grace. That's what he's talking about in that text. And then we have, as we said, there was kind of a transition, verses 18 through 20. God has a special love for those who call on him. That's God's saving grace. Did you see that? As I pointed out, verses 18 through 20, it says, the Lord is near to all who call on him. So it's talking about having a relationship with him. To all who call on him in truth, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. By the way, when it says fear God, it doesn't mean to be afraid of God. It means to have a a life-altering, a life-transforming, joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And he says, he also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him. Isn't that interesting? He's talking about God's saving grace. Now, what is God's saving grace? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says this, for by grace are you saved through faith, And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So God's saving grace is something that God gives to you, unmerited favor. And and you can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You just enter into it. And listen to me. Everybody look up here. It is unbelievable. It is amazing. (laughs) I am 
Every day, I mean, it never ceases to amaze me when I, when I reflect on, when I think about God's saving grace. I mean, I love his common grace. It's good. I love what he does on this planet Earth. But his saving grace, man, it kicks you up qu- quite a few more notches. There's an experience in his saving grace that exceeds anything that you've ever experienced on this planet Earth. And let me describe a little bit of what this saving grace is. I mean, we could spend the rest of our lives and we'll spend all of eternity exploring the depth, the height, the width, the length of God's saving grace. It is so, so amazing. And uh, here's just a, just a little glimpse of what we're talking about. When the Bible says, for by grace are you saved, the word saved means that he, first of all, when you put your faith in the personal work of Jesus Christ, he sets you free from the penalty of sin. I love that. What does that mean? It's because he takes all of our sins, past, present, and future, and he doesn't hold those against us ever, ever, ever again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That is so cool. That is so cool. That is unbelievable. And I love it because I have a lot of sins. And you do too. And he doesn't hold those against me. And he loves me and he forgives me and he sets me, sets me free of the penalty of sin, sets me free from guilt and shame and invites me into his family as his child. And then he, he's doing something in this process. Is not only has he set me free from the penalty of sin, but he's in the process of setting me free from the power of sin. He's setting me free from me. My tendency to be focused on me and be self-centered and self-absorbed, that's the essence of sin. And so as, I, as my heart is being smitten by the beauty and the glory of Christ, it takes me out of me. And there's this blessed self-forgetfulness that my life becomes more about him because you were created by God for God to give glory to God. And there's no place you'll find greater satisfaction in your life than when you're living for his glory, not yours. That's, that's unforgiving and unfulfilling ultimately. But you live for his glory because he's forgiving and fulfilling. He will satisfy you. And so he sets us free from the power of sin working in our lives. That we would want him more than anything. And then, guess what? Best is yet to come. Yes, it is. One of these days he will set us free from the very presence of sin. And we will be in his presence for all eternity. I can't wait. Yes, that's good stuff. I can't wait. So those of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ sets us free from the penalty of sin, the power of sin working in our life. That's what he's doing right now. And then he's going to one of these days set us free from the very presence of sin in his presence forever, for all eternity. That's just a little glimpse. God has a special love for those who call on him. Do you understand how special that love is? He's promised you this. Everybody look up here just for a minute. He told you he would never, ever leave you or forsake you. Ever, 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 ever. And then he he wrote it down with his blood, the blood of his son, Jesus. You want to see how, to what extent I love you? I'm going to die for you. And he died for us. That's his saving grace. Here's the next point on your notes. God's common grace can and does pave the way... For his saving grace, and oftentimes that requires a messenger to point out. And we kind of get the idea there in verses 10 and 11 in our text, Psalm 145. Notice what it says. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. So the works that he does gives thanks to him. So when you're drinking your favorite beverage, your Starbucks, or enjoying a sunset, or whatever, that's giving thanks to God, and all your saints bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds, the glorious splendor of your kingdom. We have an example of that found in the book of Acts with the the Apostle Paul. Uh, This is what the Apostle Paul did in the town called Lystra. And I've got it on on your notes as cross-references. There's two. The first one is Acts 14, 17. He's, he's trying to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what he says. He says to them in verse 17 of chapter 14 of Acts. He says, yet he did not leave himself, speaking of God, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts, hearts with good, with food and gladness. 
And then again in Athens, the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, 22 through 34, Paul goes into more detail about God's common grace to show them God's working all around you. In fact, this is where the phrase is taken, in him we live, we move, we have our being. And so he's talking about God's common grace, using God's common grace to point out God, to lead people to this place of entering into his saving, his saving grace. So God loves everybody. God has special love for those who call on him. God's common grace can and does pave the way for his saving grace. And oftentimes that requires a messenger to point that out. Here's the next thing. We should live each day thankful for God's common grace, but in utter awe and wonder of his saving grace. So that should be our response if we're really living in the reality of what God gives us every day. His common grace, we should be thankful. Thank you, God. Uh, Are there a number of things that you're thankful of? I'm thankful of, you know, we live in a day and time uh, when uh, this this guy recently, what was his name? I wrote it down here. I should remember Steve Jobs who passed away and he was instrumental in, in a lot of the Apple technology and a lot of that technology that we have nowadays, that's it's really, really a blessing because there was a time in my life when I studied and I had to send off for cassette tapes. Anybody remember cassette tapes? Yeah. My, my wife's making me get rid of my billion cassette tapes, okay? I got billions of them. I'm a little bit of a hoarder and, and I'm always saying, but there's a really a good message on that cassette. She goes, we don't have a cassette player anymore. I know, but we can still use it somehow. No, that's not true, but I've got one hidden in the corner. But yeah, how many, uh, I didn't realize this congregation was so old. How many remember 8-track? 8-track? Wow, you guys are really old. How many in your A-track, they didn't kind of line up just right, so you had to put a piece of a, kind of a chunk of paper or something up underneath it on your car to, to jack up the back end of it so that it would line up? Otherwise, I'd play a couple songs at the same time. Anybody relate to that? Yeah, so that was really messed up. How many remember Reel to Reel? Oh, my goodness. You guys are really old. How many remember before we even had the radio? Okay. Nobody's that old. Okay, but isn't it interesting? So the technology we have now, I used to send off and have to wait six weeks to get a cassette tape. Now we can go right to the websites and download on our iPods moments a message that they just taught this last week. In fact, you can download sometimes and listen to them live online. I know that you can download our messages almost like today, later on today or tomorrow morning. You'll be able to download and listen to those messages, put them on your iPod, go out and run or go out and do your chores throughout the day. It's amazing, the technology. That's all part of God's common grace. And I thank God for a lot of the advances and a lot of the, the pleasures that we experience as a result of that. But even more so, there's an awe and wonder of his saving grace. And you get a little bit of, a little bit of an idea of that in, in this Psalm 145. Did you notice how he started the psalm? I mean, the first eight verses, he just this, there's this, this praise, there's this celebration. By the way, praise is the completion of your enjoyment of something. So if you're enjoying some food, you just can't help, oh my goodness, this is, uh, yesterday my wife and I went to Smash Burger and, uh, Let's see, it was five guys a couple weeks ago, wasn't it? So, so we went to Smashburger, and we had only been there once before. And man, those were good hamburgers. Those were good. I, you know, five guys is a little cheaper, and so they're both kind of comparable. So I'm going to go back to five guys. Okay, so, so anyway, uh, where was I going with that one? It was really good. What's that? Praise, praise, yes. Thank you. Congregational participation here. I need a lot of help. <laughs> so praise. So, so I was giving a little praise there to uh, Smashburger, wasn't I? And we were both sitting there going, wow, this is good hamburger. Yeah, this is good. Woo-ha, high five. Praise God. You know, so, um, so praise is the consummation. It's the completion of your enjoyment of something. That's what he's doing here in Psalm 145. Listen to what he says. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. He says, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. I mean, he's like, woohoo, party. This is good. And then he goes on for eight verses, and then he wraps up this psalm with verse 21. He says, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And it gives you a little bit of a, a hint of his, uh, of his attitude and what's going on in his heart. And so that's important. Praise is, is the completion of our enjoyment of something, but, but uh-oh, 
we have a shift, kind of a shift. We kind of get slapped in the face with this, and it's actually in the text. It's actually throughout the scripture. Here's your next fill in the blank. Anger is an irreducible part of God's love. Anger is an irreducible part of God's love because we've got to talk about that because notice in verse 8, he said the Lord is gracious and merciful. And he didn't say that he's not angry, but he is slow to anger. It takes him a long time before he gets angry and he's abounding in steadfast love. That's talking about God's covenant love, but he's slow to anger. And did you notice in verse 20, it's almost like kind of a, kind of a sucker punch as you're working through this and he's celebrating and then all of a sudden he says, hey, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Ow. Where'd that come from? So let me see if I can understand this correctly. He says that he loves everybody. Yeah, that's, that's what he says. He says he loves everybody. And then he has a special love for, for those who call on him. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But what about this? What about this, but the wicked will be destroyed? Yeah, those that don't call on him, those that don't turn to him, he will destroy. That's, that's, that's the point. That's, that's what he's wanting us to, to understand and uh, this concept is, is throughout Scripture. In fact, one of the most popular verses, John 3.16, it's smack dab in the middle of the context of John 3.16. Anybody familiar with John 3.16? For God so loved the world. In fact, let me read those verses to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. And why would he say that, should not perish? Because we will perish the default mode of our heart in our lives is that we will perish apart from Christ's intervention. For God so loved, and he's talking about uh, really this, this, this world, the structure of this world. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And listen to what it says, verse 17. How many are familiar with what verse 17 says? For God did not send his son into the world, but that through him the world might be saved. So God did not send his son. His son came to this earth not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. His second coming, he will bring judgment. And that's the distinction between his first and second coming. And then it goes on in verse 18. So verse 17, he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So if you reject Jesus, it says that you are condemned already. And he says, And this is the judgment. Here's, here's the verdict. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. People just said, ah, I don't need Jesus. I can do it on my own. And he says, no, well, you've got judgment on you. And so in that context of this amazing love for the world, there is God's anger, God's wrath, God's judgment. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven it says this, Say to them... As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's not like God saying, hey, I can't wait to destroy the wicked. That's not the sentiment of the heart of God. That's not his attitude. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die? That's what he's saying. So where's that passion coming from? It's his love. And in the context of his love, he's saying, hey, inevitably, you are on a path. Don't you see? Don't you hear me? I am crying out to rescue you. Turn back to me. I love you with an everlasting love. That passion is coming from love, but he's saying your inevitable result of where you're headed is judgment. I'm forewarning you, I love you. Now, part of God's attributes, the, the two that tend to seem like they conflict, but they don't, they come together beautifully through the cross, is that God is just and God is loving and forgiving. How do those two come together? Because, because we're all sinners, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We're all going to face His judgment, so how can He forgive us? Well, He does that by the cross, 
Because on the cross, you have the collision of God's judgment. See, he can't overlook sin. I mean, can you, can you imagine if someone rips you off, you go to a judge, and the judge says, oh, no big deal, just get over it. Uh, and he was very unjust. That would, that would, that would bother you. Uh, anytime we see injustice, it bothers us. We need and want justice. So we want to just God, but that puts us in a, in a rough place because we also need forgiveness. And yes, we do have that because it was on the cross. The wrath of God was placed upon Jesus and we receive his forgiveness. But if I reject Jesus, I will face judgment. That's what he's saying. That's very clear. Now, I think that you need to understand that anger is an irreducible part of, of love. Not just God's love, but, but all love. Um, our daughter, it's our youngest, Natalie, our natty girl. She's 28. And we probably should stop calling her natty girl, but we're not, okay? Uh, she's our natty girl. When she comes home, you know, we just, she lives in Tucson. She's working for the school of the deaf and blind there in Tucson. She's a teacher there and is, attends a church there, really a beautiful young lady, loves the Lord. And, uh, but when she was like one and a half, two years old on her big wheel, she didn't love Jesus. Well, maybe she really didn't know him that well, but she was kind of full of herself and she liked riding her big wheel out in the middle of the street and where we lived over on Mauna Loa on about 35th Avenue, we had this kind of corner, it was kind of a cul-de-sac, but it was kind of a corner. People would race around that corner and we could always envision, you know, her riding out on the street and uh, some car coming around the corner and hitting her, running over her and dragging her down the street and killing her. And that's, that, would be, uh, that would be a parent's worst nightmare. And so when she'd go out and ride, she would look at us from time to time. And if she knew how to flip us off, she would, she would have, because she had that attitude of wanting to basically say, I will do whatever I want to do. And she'd get on her big wheel and go, just pedal out in the middle of the street. And we would just like freak out. I mean, we just said, Natalie, you can't do that. And then we'd bring discipline to her. And there were days, man, we were just dogging her all day long because we could not bear the thought of her going out on the street and getting killed. And in our love was anger. Now listen to me. It is never loving to allow someone to hurt themselves, hurt others, or to hurt you. It is never loving. And there should always be a righteous indignation that rises up within in you. And it's not always righteous on our side. God is always, he's always righteous in his indignation. But we struggle. But, but you need to understand that. That's just a, a part of love. But here's the next thing you need to know. Beware of falling into one of two extremes as it relates to this. This idea of anger being a part of love. One is the liberal church. God accepts and loves everybody and judges nobody. That's very common in our society today. It's very liberal. Liberal church. And then there's the legalistic church. God only accepts and loves his chosen and everyone else can go to hell and we're glad. <laughs> Praise God. There's that attitude too, and that's not right either, okay? Both of those are the two extremes. And why is that, uh, why is it that in the, in the, in the average, uh, I mean, those are really the only two options in the average person's mind in America today. Would you agree with that? When they think of Christianity, they tend to put Christianity in one of those two categories. Why is that? I think it's because of the media, I really think that the media is so imbalanced in their presentation that they love putting people that have that legalistic and then that liberal approach, both of those two, but you very seldom see anybody in the media that really has a balanced understanding. Now, this is what you need to understand. The gospel, listen to me, the gospel is about a man, the Lord Jesus, who died for his enemies. We should be pleading with people to come to Christ, to know Christ, to experience what he has because there's not a better life on this planet Earth. And we should never do it with any kind of arrogance because if we do, we don't understand grace. We were rescued by his grace and when we come off with this arrogant, proud attitude and, you know, duck, duck, damn kind of a mindset, oh, you're in, you're in, you're out. You're going to hell. Praise God. Oh, that's, who are you? Who are we to make that call? God makes that call. 
In fact, the Bible even says Jesus made it very clear that it's not even our job to try to pick the tares from the wheat because it destroys the wheat. It's not our job to kind of pick and choose. Yeah, we're supposed to have discernment in the church and we need to, you know, have good judgment within that and make sure the church is healthy and clean. But when it comes to uh, some aspects of where people are spiritually, that's not our call. Ultimately, everybody will have to give an account before God. So we have to be careful with that. But we still have to maintain that balance. Yeah, God is just. There is judgment. But man, is he amazingly love, loving. And he took our judgment for us. That's the gospel. It's an amazing message. And I don't know why anybody wouldn't run towards God after understanding that. Because most people are running from God because they're running from this wrong concept that they have of God. Because they would categorize everybody either as a liberal or legalist. Because we tend to swing into those two extremes. But it's neither. It's God's grace. Now let's talk about the completeness of God's love. Our society tends to define love as emotion, which is feeling, chemistry, and desire, or action, which would be kind of duty and stoicism. It's much more than that. Emotion kind of works like this. You, you hear people say this, that they have either fallen in love or they, they're no longer in love, just fallen out of love. How many of you have ever heard anybody ever say that? Those kind of things. That's crazy. They obviously didn't ever know what love really is, because that's not what love is. That's, a, that's such a shallow understanding of love. It's just chemistry, desire. No, it's, it's way beyond that. But then sometimes people say, well, no, it's action. If I were to ask one of you guys why you brought your wife some flowers and you said, because it's my duty, I would go, come on. What would your wife say if you said that? Why'd you bring me these flowers? It's my duty. Kind of like you have to, huh? No. No, I would hope that you would say, you know what, because my heart has been so ravished by the love of Jesus that it's just kind of sloshing around in my soul. I'm so filled up with who he is and what he's done for me. I want my wife to see that. I can't help but love her, and and more importantly, I want her to see him through me. So it's got to go way beyond just this emotion in action. It's really heartfelt. In fact, here's here's a statement by Plato. Plato said, human love is the child of poverty. Huh? What does that mean? Anybody know what that means? I don't know what it means because I put it on there and I thought maybe I would be able to come up with an answer by the time I got up here, but I don't. And so maybe you guys could kind of figure this one out. Turn to the person next to you and see if they know what that means. I do know what it means, but go ahead. See if they know real quick. Anybody know? Sometimes you have to kind of replace those words a little bit, don't you? How about this one? Human love is the product of neediness. Does that make more sense? No. Human love is the product of neediness. How about this one? You've heard me say this a lot. If I try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity on my own through Christ, all of my relationships become an effort to complete myself. You guys tracking with me on that one? You know, all he's saying is that the best that we can offer people is emptiness. In fact, let me take you to the next uh, point, next fill in the blank. Selfish affection is what it's called. Selfish affection is the helping others only because it profits you. And that's what he's talking about. How many are familiar with the love chapter? Where's the love chapter? 1 Corinthians 13. And the first three verses talk about uh, this selfish affection. He says, uh, he basically he's just saying that I could, if I do all these things, and I could do all these great things without having love, real love. So you can do a lot of really almost seemingly loving things and yet still not have love in your heart. And he's talking about selfish affection. You can be doing them for the wrong reason. Um, I remember when I first kissed my wife, our very first kiss. And uh, it was exhilarating. Woo! Oh my goodness. And you might ask, do you still have that same exhilaration some 34 years later And when I kiss her? And no, not at all. Uh, it's something better. It's something way better. Because the exhilaration that I was experiencing was egocentric. It was more about me. When I kissed her, she kissed me back. I knew that she was going to kiss me because I started leaning in like this, and she was kind of leaning in like this, and then I kind of backed up a little bit, and then she kind of backed up like this. So then I leaned back in, and then she kind of leaned back in, and then I kissed her. Woo! Felt good. She kissed me back! It wasn't so much about her, it was more about how she made me feel. I felt good about me. By the way, you need to know this, 
that most adulterous relationships happen not so much the person, you'll never hear a person say, it's, it's about them. Their focus is typically, uh, it's, it's about how, you know, about their well-being. It's typically about how they make you feel. They make me so, they make me feel so good about myself. That's called being egocentric or self-centered. It's about you. It's about you. That's, it's called selfish affection is the helping others only because it profits you. And that's the reason why I said my love for my wife now is less about me than what it was then. And it's much richer and deeper. It's more focused on her and, is, and it's more solid. The 34 years that we've had, oh my goodness, it is amazing. So what we had in those early days was very selfish, self-centered, egocentric. And, it's, and what, it, what it did through the years is we began to follow Christ more and more. It was less about us, more about the other person. And, uh, and so that's why Jonathan Edwards actually was the one that he, he wrote the book, uh, The Nature of True Virtue. And he made a distinction between common virtue and true virtue. And he said, this is what common virtue is. It's a, it's a selfish affection. That we are attracted to people who have things we think will build us up. It's, it's what we call love, but it's actually ego and self-centeredness. Very common. And he wasn't disdaining this common virtue, but this is what he said. There's a virtue, there's a, there's a behavior that flows out of a heart that is ravished and smitten by the beauty and the glory of Christ and all that he has done for us on the cross that so... So fills your soul that your soul is so sloshing with this love, this experience of God's love, that it just overflows your life into other people's lives. See, that's the Christian love that we're talking about here. In fact, here, let me give you the definition of God's love. It's the next one. God's love binds his heart with ours and so identifies with us that he cannot be happy unless we are flourishing. That's love. And I gave you some cross-references there so you can understand how God has attached his love to our flourishing. Genesis 6, 5 through 6, it says in those verses, the Lord saw how evil man on earth was and his heart was filled with pain. Why? Because man's rejection of God, his sinfulness brought on suffering and it broke God's heart. Um, Isaiah 63, 9, Hosea eleven eight also talk about that. Now, I want you to keep your finger there in Psalm 145. Actually, we won't go back there, so you don't need to keep your finger there. Uh, maybe. Okay, no, we're not. Uh, go to John chapter 15. Make up your mind, Pastor Ray. Okay. John chapter 15. I want you to turn there because these are really rich words. I want you to understand. I want you to hear God's heart towards you. I want you to hear what he thinks about you a little bit just from these few verses. I mean, it's throughout this book, throughout the Bible. We're going to start reading in verse 19. This is kind of what, it's kind of the, uh, he uses this metaphor of the vine, of a vineyard, and he's using this to teach his disciples there. It's part of the upper room discourse. It's just shortly, you know, before He's going to be betrayed and go through the whole court session and he's going to be hanging on the cross for them. And so he's giving, him, giving his disciples kind of last insight. But starting in verse 9, chapter 15, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That is amazing. That is an amazing thought. As the Father loves Jesus, Jesus is saying, I love you. And then he says, abide in my love, live in my love, dwell in my love, enjoy my love. Every day of your life, fill your heart with the beauty and the value of my love. That's what he's saying. And then he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Why would he want us to do that? Okay, there we go with the obedience. Gee, you guys are legalistic here. There's the word obey. Wait, wait, wait. Why would he want us to obey? Why would he want us to obey? Look at the next verse. 
Here's the bottom line. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. Oh my goodness, you're flourishing. He wants you to obey because you will flourish. You will have the most amazing life you've ever had. In fact, it kind of works like this as you work through the 15th chapter. Um, It could be broken down like this. This would be a good outline to teach from. To know God is to love God. To love God is to obey God. To obey God is to abide in him, to dwell and live in him. And to abide in him is to live an amazingly fruitful and fulfilling life. But what if I'm not very fruitful and very fulfilled? Well, then you need to go back one because you're probably not really abiding. But what if I'm not really abiding? Well, it's because you're not obeying. Well, what if I'm not obeying? Well, it's because... Uh, you, you don't love him. Well, what if I'm not, I don't love him? Because you don't know him. Get to know him. You can't help but love him because we love because he first loved us. Get to know his love. And as you get to know his love, you will, you will obey him. Why would you not? Why would you not obey him? And as you obey him, you will abide in him. And as you abide in him, fruitful and fulfilled life. He continues on, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, what is he saying? This love will be so, your life will be so saturated with, with my love, if you do this, if you walk in this, if you abide in my love, it will overflow your life. Um, I kept using that word, I used it a couple times, sloshing, sloshing around. You know, when you go buy a Starbucks, uh, I, I made a mistake a few times, I was going to take my wife a uh, Starbucks after a meeting that I had with Joe one morning, and uh, and so I, I forgot to get one of those little green things. You know those green things you put on the top of the Starbucks? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Because what happens if you don't have one of those and you hit a bump? Boop. Slosh all over the console of your, you know, all over. It makes a mess. And so there's this sloshing. So when you get bumped around in life, when you get beat and pushed, what sloshes out of your life? Your life will be so filled up with God that when you get pushed around and bumped around, His love will come out of your life. That's what he's talking about here. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did for us. He laid down his life for us. And then he calls us his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I make known to you. He's just talking about this level of intimacy. Oh my goodness, that you're close to God. You know God. You walk with God. You experience God in your life. And nothing more fruitful or fulfilling. Let me take you to the next point on your notes, and uh, so, uh, oh, no, 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 let's not go to the next point. Did you already put that up there? No, okay, good. Woo! I'm going to grab a drink here because there's a couple extra little illustrations I want to make. How would you make a 10-year-old uh, boy happy on the spot? Just kind of like, if you're a parent of him, you're just like, how about this? How about this? Here's a suggestion for you. Uh, tell him that he doesn't have to do his homework. He can eat whatever he wants to, okay? And then uh, how about he can play up, he can stay up all hours of the night playing video games. Woo! Mom and dad love me. No, they don't. No, they don't love you if they let you do that. They don't love you. Let me ask you that. Would that lead to this young boy's uh, life flourishing in the long run? Would, Would you guys? What do you think? No. No, from time to time, you know, maybe they can do that for just a couple minutes. But, but I mean, really, I mean, you can, have, you can have, have a break and have some fun. But in the long run, is he going to flourish? No, as a parent, you want your children to flourish. And therefore, you're going to subject them to uh, some discipline and some standards and some things that they're not going to understand. I'm not going to understand. I don't think I've ever heard a child ever say, thank you, mom and dad, for making me go to bed early. I so thank you for that. I've never heard a kid ever say that. Or thank you for helping me to eat right because I want to eat right. They don't say that. They don't say that. Nor do we 
oftentimes to God as he's directing our lives. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about God's wisdom, that he knows exactly what we need. And oftentimes, we're going, I want to stay up all hours of the night. I want to eat whatever I want to eat. He's saying, no, I've got something better for you. See, that's part of that flourishing. God wants us to flourish. God is more concerned, now listen to me, God is more concerned with your life flourishing for all eternity than your temporal flourishing. Listen, and he will always, he will always sacrifice your temporal flourishing for your eternal flourishing. Always. Always. We'll talk more about it next week. Here's the next point. The parent-child relationship is the best example of what it means to love someone the way that God loves us. Have you ever noticed when you have a baby that if you don't take care of them like 24-7, they're not going to survive? Huh? Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you've got to do everything. You've got to throw your time right out the window. It's going to be all about them for the next 20 years. Okay, maybe not that far, that long. Hopefully at some point they'll be able to take care of themselves a little bit, a little bit more each day. But I mean, probably for about the first few years, it's just like all of your effort. In fact, it's interesting when I ask couples, hey, has this really changed your life around? They always look at us like, what, you crazy? Yeah, of course it has. We can't go anywhere. All of our time is focused on this little one. And, uh, and I think there's, there's an interesting parallel as it relates to our relationship with God, the parent-child relationship is the best example of what it means to love someone the way that God loves us. First John, I think it's wrong in your, in your notes. It's supposed to be First John 3, 1. I put 1, 3. I flipped it. But you guys know that one. It's one of my favorite verses. It uses one of my favorite words. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God And that is what we are. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, did you you notice what he said? This is how you approach God. You say it like this. Our king. No, he didn't say that. Our shepherd. No, he didn't say that either. Our creator. No, he didn't say that. Although those are all three true. No, he said what? He said our, our father, our daddy, our daddy. Why? Because throughout the scripture, it's giving us something that's to be a precedence in our life and how we relate to God. When in the early days of my life, I was pretty stress-free, happy-go-lucky, young guy, didn't seem to have a care in the world, and then I got married. And then I realized, you know, it dawned on me, wait a minute, I'm not only responsible for me, but I'm also responsible for her. What did I go and do that for? Somebody said, amen. (laughs) It's like it's a little bit too late to wake up and realize that you're now responsible. And then we went out and got three kids. What do we go do that for? I mean, then, you know, the stress just keeps piling on with each child. And then my kids are grown and gone just about the time we thought, hey, this is looking pretty good. Then they go and have kids. I got five little grand boys. And, I, you know, it creates this kind of stress, this like, oh, I hope, I hope they're able to raise those kids better than when we raised them. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I don't think they can because we kind of set them up kind of to, not to do so well. <laughs> Lord, help them. Oh, God, help them. And, uh, but there's something about that. This is what I'm, what I'm trying to say, I guess, is once you start having children, you find that you are only as happy as your most unhappy child. Your happiness is bound up in the happiness of your kids. And listen to me, that is a dim glimpse of God's love for you. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says, human love, as Plato teaches us, is the child of poverty, of want or lack. It is caused by a, by a good in the beloved that you feel you need. But God has no needs. God can give good, but God cannot need it. 
And in that sense, God's love is bottomlessly selfless by definition. Therefore, if God sometimes speaks as though his eternal fullness could be in want and in want of those beings in whom God bestows all of their existence, this can only mean that God has made himself able so to hunger. In other words, if the immutable heart can be grieved by the beings of its own making, it is divine omnipotence, no other, that has so subjected itself freely and in a humility that surpasses our understanding that God would connect his heart to our heart and our well-being and to our flourishing. And unless we're flourishing, his heart is broken. That's the point. That's the idea. And when you begin to understand that, it revolutionizes your life. That's the God of the Bible. Next point on your notes. The more I live in his astonishing or astounding love, both common and saving for me, the more I can give that to others. A couple questions. I'm going to show you a video and then we're going to sing a song. Here's the question. Are you a love philanthropist? Huh? Yeah. You're receiving so much love from God that you recklessly give it away without expecting anything in return. It's just overflowing your life. Is your soul sloshing with an experience of God's love? It's not the privilege of a favored few, but normal, ordinary Christian living. There's a video here that we've showed a few times. It's been about a year and a half, and it's a, it's a, it's a good one. It's called Martian Child, if you've ever seen the movie. Science fiction writer played by John Cusack, recently widowed, considers whether to adopt a hyper-imaginative six-year-old abandoned and socially rejected boy who says he's really from Mars. And he's, I mean, he's broken, just like all of us. When you go through life, you just get the heck beat out of you, and you get hurt, and then that kind of wounds you in such a way that you really have a hard time receiving love from people, and that's kind of what he's done. He's got this imaginary world, and it's a, it's a way of building walls, and this guy that's wanting to, uh, to adopt him is trying to get behind those walls and to show him he loves him, and uh, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's love for us and how God pleads with us to tell us that I will never, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. This is at the end of the movie when the little boy's out on a ledge and he's waiting for the Mars Martians to come and take him home. And so this daddy's kind of pleading with him to pull him off of the ledge and to bring him back into his arms. And this is what I want you to do as you watch this and then as we sing this last song, Oh, How He Loves Us. You know that you're beginning to make progress in understanding God's love when you can apply God's love to your heart specific to where you are most restless. Where are you most restless today? What are you stressed out over? What's bothering you? Is it financial? Is it relational? Is it physical? Allow God to meet you right here, right now, in this video, in this song, before you walk out of here because His perfect love chases away all fears. Watch this video. Yeah. You can tell them about all the stuff we did and how much fun we had. Dennis, look at me. Tell them about all the fun stuff we did and, you know, how much fun we had. You can tell them how, how hard you tried. You know, to fit in, to be like all of us. Human beings can be kind of cruel. Huh? I promise I'll tell them you were nice to me. Thanks. You're a great human, Dennis. That's the funny part. And I just wanted you to feel like you belong to me. Because that's what I think you really want. Underneath all this, I think you want to belong to someone. I wish we could have more time together. I want to prove to you that not all parents disappear forever. Why do they go sometimes? I don't know. That's a... I don't know. That's 
it's a mystery. Sometimes it's their fault, and sometimes it's not. It's a, it's a mystery. I don't know. Because they were stupid. Whoever let you go, those were the stupidest beings in the universe. I mean, they were so dumb they couldn't even see what was right in front of them. How could they not see how extraordinary you are, how big your heart is? I'm not even that smart and I can see it. It's so obvious. I mean, you're the easiest kid in the world to love. Well, to me, you are. You know what I think? I think you love me too. I think you're just filled with it. I think it's just waiting to burst out of you. Dennis, you're my son. You're my home forever. And I will never, ever, 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 ever leave you.